Thanks for listening to the ODI podcast, where we bring you the most inspiring stories of data use and impacts around the world. I'm Anna Scott, and today I'm talking to Andy Hamplett and Simon Raper about how open data can help to reduce food poverty. Andy is co-founder and director at AAM Associates, an independent research agency and consultancy that helps social organizations with digital innovation. Simon is founder of Capellia, a machine learning and analytics business. Andy and Simon have worked together to create the UK's first dynamic visualization tool for food poverty by aligning the Trussell Trust Food Bank Network's client and food bank location data with a range of open data sets. Andy, let's start with you. You focus on supporting global social impact with digital technology. What came first, your interest in tech or social change? Social change, really, but with um, tech always in the mix somewhere. So I've worked in youth charities. Um, I was the head of democratic services in the London borough for a while. And while all of it was about social change and impact and democracy, I've always been one of those early adopters when things are coming on board. So when we were in democracy, we were trying tablets and handwriting conversion models, uh, which was too early. And with all the charities I've worked, you know, jumping straight on social media stuff and just exploring, really. Um, and then after that, um, when I left sort of heading up organisations, I just went to finance for a bit. And I did a lot of journalistic type research into charities' use of technology, which is really useful, um, both to have one eye on what's coming over the hill in the commercial sector and how that might be used, but mainly looking over to the charity sector. And it, it's the organisational and the operational and the strategic barriers that are there that makes a lot of tech stuff bounce off. Um, so eyes on both of them. So started with social change, but really passionate about breaking through those barriers and saying, let's have a go at this. Brilliant. And we're here today to talk mainly about your work uh, supporting the Trussell Trust Food Bank Network. Um, when did you first come across the Trussell Trust? Well, like most people with an interest in social issues, I've, I've sort of followed their rise over the past five or six years um, as that touchstone for where the austerity world is going. Um, and with their release of their annual stats, it was all, well, that's because you're starting up more food banks and not because the need is there. So it's been quite an interesting political uh, football being kicked around. Um, so tracking them generally, and actually I was, as part, part of my role, I, I tracked technologies generally, and I had started to see a lot of stuff working out in food bank networks generally, globally. I thought, oh, they're trying interesting things. Quite a lot in San Francisco, actually, where you get all the tech people and there's a lot of homelessness, and guess what, they're trying lots of different apps. So I had one eye raised on that. And then once we spotted, with my academic partners in Hull University, once we spotted this um, this funding option, I said, right, okay, I've got lots of ideas on this, and we've got to work with the Trust and Trust on this, so I just approached them and said, we want to do And Simon, you have extensive experience in statistics, machine learning, data mining, and analytics, and you've worked with a lot of commercial and media groups. What first drew you to work on food poverty? Well, I think it was just that, the, the fact that it was an opportunity to do something that was a good cause, and I'd not worked on any work in the sort of charity sector. Uh, and when I was approached by University Hull and Andy, um, it was a combination of that and the fact that it was kind of obvious from the data, our first look at the data, that it was very rich in terms of uh, the, both spatially, uh, in terms of lo locations we got and temporally, the, the time series went back a long way, and there was a lot to be done with it. So it was a great opportunity to use skills there. Brilliant. So the Trussell Trust has 400 food banks that provide a minimum of three days emergency food and support to people experiencing crises in the UK. What are the main reasons that people need food banks? As, as individuals, it's just where they all find themselves caught short. Um, and it is that, that touch point for being in real crisis. Looking at the data, 
And again, going back to the earlier point around this being a, a politically charged environment, lots of the data suggests that it's around benefit, uh, benefit delays or benefits being cut, and all of a sudden, um, a lot of that, talking to the food bank managers, you know, for example, when you would be out of a job or lost a job or a part-time job, and then the system, which was in massive change itself, uh, following a governmental change, didn't seem to be up to speed to get people the resources they need. So benefits is the main one that seems to come out. In order to significantly reduce UK hunger, the Trussell Trust works with organisations from various sectors, from businesses to government to charities to the general public. Andy, you've raised in the past how challenging it is to unite these disparate agencies, given the problem of hunger is so complicated. Let's talk first about how technology was initially applied to help manage this collective work. So as part of the research project, um, before we even became interested in open data and analytics, it was just generally exploring um, the use of technology in food bank networks. Um, so our collaborators at Hull University did some really great operational research modelling, uh, both of the Trussell Trust as a corporate body, but also within indi individual food banks working on a fr franchise model, just to see how they did what they did, you know, what, what their aims were, and how they managed to receive food and donations and then channel that through to the people who needed them. So that was really interesting. And then on the other side, I was looking at all the technology side. And you know, lo lots of really interesting things, thinking about 70 different approaches. Uh, some of my favourites were you know, very simple things in terms of online volunteer management, whereas rather having a volunteer having to manage volunteers, which is uh, a drain on resources, I'm a volunteer, I can just go in and click online and say which shift I'm going to take. And then there were some really interesting um, pieces, particularly in the States, which has been addressing this problem for a lot, a lot longer. Um, where they were starting to understand perhaps the power of network effects. So rather than just asking for individual donations, as a donor I could go in and I could purchase certain items of food. And when so many people purchase those items, then you get bulk buying um, purchase discounts. You know, so they were trying to think through how they could get the cream the, the most out of the, the networks they had. So all of that was interesting. Um, and then the two parts of those research were, let's bring the, the operational research together and the, the map of the, of the charity and what it's trying to do and the technology and, and match them, ideally to see what tech options could fit those holes in the road. Um, but before we moved to data, we realised actually they're really, they're really lean, they're really well run, it's a really strong model in terms of getting food to people who need it. So all the kind of app, app approach and online approach wasn't really touching the sides, I don't think, in terms of the transformative um, change. The game changer in this area really has been data analysis. Tell us a bit about how it's enhanced the work of social movements. So, I think there's two, two elements to this, certainly in the work we're doing at AM Associates. One is just understanding the complexities and, and the new tools which are available because of the, the new data waves coming out, the new big data waves. So you see the commercial world, uh, and just started to look at all the case studies of impact and how things were changing and how you could actually make use of it, first, first of all. Um, I, I actually was drawn to this because I didn't see much happening in the social sector. Um, lots of stuff talking about social media and the enhancement of that and, and, and networks across that way. But my belief is that all these techniques which are being used in the commercial sector, um, they can be used in the social sector too. Um, and the barriers there, talking about organisational barriers, were um, most charities are, you know, fairly stretched and, uh, and their shoulders are the door the whole time so it's hard to sort of raise your head above the parapet and look at the strategic vision side so I think that's where people like us come in to actually see what these guys are doing what these guys are doing with a couple of examples um, which is always really useful to bring people to the table 
Um, Citizens Advice, I think, are doing brilliant work over here in terms of analysing their data. My favourite story on, on text analytics around this, which just brings it home to people, um, is um, Citizens Advice took five years' worth of their call records and their client engagement records. So you come in, you ask for advice, I type in, and this is the problem they're facing, and, and, and put it into the system. And they brought some data scientists in to look at those look at those records, and they found that they should have spotted the problem of payday loans two years before they actually did. Because everyone on the shop floor was typing payday loan, but the system just asked them to capture it as debt. So that's what went up. And that just transformed their way of saying, hang on, data's much more than a performance management sheet at the end of the month. What do we do? And they, so they cracked open. And again, the, the most important thing there for me is people in charities do have a lot of rich data. And the new data side techniques aren't particularly expensive if you want to come and apply them in those kind of ways. So all these lines were leading me to think there's more to be done here. So Simon, what were your initial thoughts discovering data within this kind of sector, having been from the kind of commercial and business sectors before, how different did you see it and how differently was it being handled in your eyes? I think actually they um, didn't realise quite how good the data set was. Um, it, it was a lot cleaner than data I'd seen captured commercially. I think people have been very diligent in their collection of it. There, there wasn't there were definitely um, room for expanding the scope of the kind of questions that they asked, but the, the quality of the data ensured that we could get on and do some quite interesting analysis right away. So that was, that was a surprising, um, a nicely surprising um, thing that we discovered. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, to be honest, the, the issues were very similar to the commercial issues, or issues in the commercial sector. Uh, I think uh, people within the business hadn't visualized the data prior to our um, engagement, and I think they were amazed at what they had uh, and what they could use. Uh, so that, that wasn't different, but uh, it's a similar story. Well, that's really encouraging. So maybe there are lots of charities out there that have very good quality data, as you say, that could be using it much better. Oh, yeah, and I think it's all about um, knowing what to do with it and, um, uh, and, yeah, understanding the value of what you've got rather than doing yourself down because you're not collecting this piece of information or that piece of information. We can, there's rarely a case we can't do something quite interesting with whatever somebody's got. If, if, if I can just add to that sort of that, that, that bridge between the commercial sector and the, the charity and the, and the voluntary and the, and the social sector, there are more challenges, I think, perhaps in the social sector because in the commercial world, there's a bottom line. Yeah. And everything ends up going back to that bottom line at some point. Yeah. You know? So there's a real driver there for what you're trying to achieve, mainly monetary. But within the social sector, well, if your vision and your mission aren't well aligned, or actually you might want to change your vision and mission, it's just, what are we using this for and what does it enable us to do? Very true. You're listening to the ODI podcast, covering inspiring stories of data use and impacts around the world. If you're passionate about data and its potential, why not join our global network as an ODI member? If you want to learn more about data in all its forms and how to make the best of it, we hold diverse, interactive training courses and events. Find out more at theodi.org or tweet us at ODIHQ. So let's talk a bit about the tool that you built together. What was the purpose initially and how did you create it? So the, I think it was inspired by the case studies that uh, Andy had looked at from the US and the objective was to use the, uh, the very visually appealing and advanced mapping technology that's available to just about anybody 
um, in browsers these days, and use that to, uh, to picture the, geographically the patterns uh, of food bank usage, and to also use uh, the geography to relate that food bank usage to certain other um, statistical indicators that we, we found through the census data, things like uh, deprivation indexes, information about uh, lack of employment or health, long-term health issues. So yes, it was to bring together these two data sets um, geographically in a way that everybody in that business could explore that relationship. And what were the, uh, the initial results that you saw? So actually, prior to creating the tool, uh, we did, as we always do, some preliminary, preliminary analysis of the data. Um, and we saw some interesting things, such as regional variations in the, in the kind of crises that were, that were, that were um, logged by the people claiming the vouchers. And we saw some interesting temporal patterns as well, like um, heavy usage in the food banks uh, running up to Christmas, uh, and different reactions to things like ben benefit delays depending on the regions. So there's some very interesting stories there. There was also, it was also interesting to see what precisely was correlated with food bank usage for each type of crisis. So for example, when you looked at uh, the use of food bank vouchers during school summer holidays, this seemed to be very much related to areas where there was a lot of low paid work or people doing a lot of part time work. And have, as far as you know, have other charities used this data to better hone their services that are related to the information that you've gathered? Uh, not yet, but we're hoping they will with us. This was just a demonstrator, I think. First of all, we, 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 it was a completely exploratory piece of work where you know, we may not have found anything of interest, but you know, thanks to Simon's good work and diligence, we, we did. In, in, the, in those early stages of the, the tool coming out, you could see how excited they were just to see things visualised, first of all, and yeah. it just spun off a load of different questions. Oh, we should look at that. What about that? What about that? But to start with, I think we'd want to get them to the next level. While they have been brilliant at collecting and analysing data and putting it out twice a year, this would relieve the pressure on them centrally if we can put this in the hands of everyone locally. Um, and then that's when you start to get a million ideas coming out of it um, and taking it forward. The idea of... Um the, the use of maps um, as a means of visualization, I think, ties in very closely to the, the localness of charities because, as Andy was saying earlier, people immediately want to see how things are going in their individual regions. And these mapping technologies allow you to zoom, in, zoom into very detailed maps of your own area. And I think that makes it very real for people and that they engage much more because of it. But, but in terms of, you're asking about how other charity can use this and what might be, I think there, there are a lot of barriers to overcome. One, we need to be talking about projects like this and citizen advice and everyone else who's doing stuff, just, just to let people understand that it's not as scary as you might think and it can be done, not in a huge amount of time. I think there's also a really important role for funders within this and social sector funders who are really are interested in data and impact data, but they're not quite at this stage yet. Actually, this isn't about collecting data to do a lovely report we launch on a white table uh, once a year, but actually this is data we can play with and engage with and, and explore uh, and work out how we change our views of the world and how we react. Um, so I think there's a job for funders to step up to that plate as well. And is there any other advice that you would give charities from your experience, i.e. those that may not feel like they can afford to visualise data, but you think they might have a, an awful lot of good data that they could be visualising or using better. 
Are there any sort of quick tips that you would impart? Well, I, I think actually the barriers to visualizing the data are much lower than people realize. A lot of the tools are, are open source and freely available and don't require that much expertise to create. Um, so I, I would say don't wait until you've got the most wonderful data set in the world to start working with it. Uh, use whatever you have and start exploring it geospatially um, and then use that to uh, inspire people to create more data sets and do more with the data. And do you think there's more scope for this kind of partnership in different charities? So, or The Andy and me partnership. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, you asked earlier about the difference between commercial applications that I'm involved in and work like this. And one of the things that stood out for me is the degree to which um, working with Andy has involved the communication and the follow-up on the work. So it's reached a very wide audience. And I feel a lot has been done with the analysis, largely thanks to Andy's efforts working with the Trust of Trust. So that's been very rewarding for me uh, to see so much made of the work. And I'd add um, to that, again, just picking up on two or three things, it, it's not as difficult as you might, it's not, it doesn't have to take three years and it's not another world that you can't engage with and again Simon's been brilliant in coming in and making it understandable to people um, and, and doing some, some stuff really, really quickly. Um, what I understand is, you know, there's a whole load of more heart in this work as well which people are attracted to and uh, you can see the impact that people are talking about. So. The job is to encourage funders and to encourage uh, other charities and create as well universities who aren't great at reaching out with people to do real world stuff. Um, and that's why, to answer your points on that, that's why it's important to just talk stories up like this to make people understand it's not scary, let's all crack on and do it. Brilliant. And just lastly, what's, uh, what's in the pipeline for you both? Um, so if we take this, this project as a, as, a, as a start, I think there's sort of three elements. Um, one, we are searching for funding, which I'm sure we'll find um, due to the, the great publicity and interest we've got for the Trust of Trust to take Simon's um, prototype mapping tool and do some user workshops that really involve the, the, the local food bank managers to say how, what, do you need, what features you need, how will you use this, then find some funding to build that and then they've got that to carry on with uh, forever. The second part is we're looking to bring in some academic funding to move beyond if we found one data set which is rich and we found some real value in it let's take six charities in an area of the UK or an area of London, each with data. How do we share that data across them so we can get a real bottom-up, rich picture uh, of data and poverty in, in a local area? And, and, and finally, I think it's, I'm really interested in looking at this in a, in, a, in a broader system way because charities do have a lot of data, but they don't have the skills to uh, wrangle it or make use of it. There's a lot of open data there which can both bring to life charity data, but also, you know, enliven itself at the same time. And my big thing is there's a huge amount of resource in academia. Um, and there are thousands of students and there are PhDs and they're all, they all have, they pay, you know, 300,000 for the IBM Watson licenses, but they struggle to find data. Uh, and then there's great people like Simon and commercial side. I think pulling all them together in a system way where there's some sort of data sharing stuff going on is what I'm going to have a crack at. Brilliant. And um, who could help you in doing that? Do you have any call to actions for... Cool. Generally, who wants to play? Right. Uh, get in touch. So charities who are interested and piqued by uh, this story to want to get involved, they bring value. Any academics who want to do this, you know, loads of universities are setting up data science academies, but you know, they're going to struggle to find data. You know, we can patch them in there. And particularly social sector funders. 
um, you have a real role to play in helping to accelerate this. So come and talk to us. We'll advise you and, and, and give you some examples. Um, yeah, well, uh, when I, I'd obviously like to do some more work with Andy in the future. That's that's definitely um, an option in the pipeline. The area which I'm very interested in, in terms of taking my business forward, is in terms of training and skills and workshops. So I do a lot of work on my blog, um, releasing tutorials and uh, do um, quite a lot of um, work with clients, skilling up their workforces, uh, in, particularly in statistical and machine learning techniques. So that's working out how to grow that as a business is, gonna, is my sort of priority at the moment. Um, it's a very interesting area because it's quite hard to see what the future holds um, for it, and, and that's not in a bad way, in a very good way, because it, things are developing at very rapid speed, so new technologies are around all the time. And in a way, that's what's keeping my business um, very engaged, because um, as these technologies uh, move forward, there's increased need for training in terms of practical application. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you so much, both of you. It's been really interesting. You're very welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the ODI podcast. For information about upcoming episodes, ODI projects, our latest blogs, and how to contribute, visit theodi.org. If you ever have any questions or would like to say hi, you can tweet us at ODIHQ.